Welcome back to The Human Exception. Sorry missed the last couple weeks. I had some crazy stuff happening at work, but it should be all good now. We can get back to our regularly scheduled programming. This week, Nathan's going to tell us about Zhang Yixiao, often called the Pirate Queen of the Eastern Seas. Zhang Yixiao went from life as a sex worker to controlling a marine fleet of 1,800 ships and is considered one of the most successful pirates to have ever sailed. Hallie then is going to tell us about the guy that made us all stop eating lead, Claire Patterson, an unsung hero that went head-to-head with the United States Public Health Service and the commercial giants of the gasoline and lead industries, and won. Content warning, expect your usual dose of foul language, but other than that, things are pretty clean. Let's get ready for another human exception. got the craigs are... i see that there's something different yeah fancy craig yeah what old old craig is has glowed up a little <laughs> he no longer oh. uh drinks out of a shoe he drinks out of louis vuittons <laughs> oh my gosh. only out of red bottoms <laughs> wow that uh, that happened okay <laughs> Wanna see my downstairs mix up? Oh fuck! I gotta watch that again. Oh, um, so we were doing a water change, uh, because we had an ammonia spike in our tank, and I said something about putting something in your mouth, and Jake started singing "Don't You Put It in Your Mouth," and I didn't know what that's from, <laughs> so I googled it. It is terrifying. I don't it know how Canadians grew so up. Good. So many terrible, scary child things and have less damage than the average American child. <laughs> okay, you think we have less damage. We're just more polite about it. <laughs> We're just better about hiding it. I guess. Also we have also scary. we have a lot less guns up here, so that is That's true. Fair. That is very true. <laughs> Um, but I also thought it was very topical um, for today's show. Has you also been... have a, a lady who thinks she's the queen of Canada, so you know. That is true. Up on us. That is true. <laughs> but then again, America has someone who thinks he's the king of America, so. Uh, yeah. Ooh, put him together and then throw him into the ocean. I mean... I think then they'll I just think, think that on his way. in the ocean, right? <laughs> also, libertarians building fucking sea sea islands. That is my favorite thing ever. It's so like, ridiculous. It's so I there's that um court if you haven't read that book a libertarian walks into a bear, it's worth it. Oh my god, there's a book called that? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> This um I... this whole town decided they wanted, or you know, the people who ran it decided that they were going to live by true libertarian ideals. So no rules, just right. Outback Monster Factory, and then they had a bear invasion because no one was picking up the trash. Oh no! <laughs> that yeah. sounds about right. That sounds yep. great. That sounds exactly like what happens. 
Yep. And then they all got into arguments with each other, and then the guns came out, and everything ended badly. So, as it does, yep. sounds about right. As it does, yeah. It's really good though. Like it's really well reported. It's yeah. <laughs> oh hmm. my god. I, I recommend. <laughs> it made my head spin. <laughs> Oh yes, yeah. How... You can read that. It's great. Sorry, I'm I'm still dealing with Jello brain. So like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Been there. All right. Who is um? Who's first? Yeah. Not me. Not me. I didn't do my homework. <laughs> like when you're in class. And you didn't yeah, get your, I mean, you know, there's two days of presentations and you're banking on going the second day so you can finish. That's me. Like, I could nope. go first if you guys want. I'm just rolling oh, off of one pirate situation into another. Oh, yeah. Why Hell not? Yeah. We just, let's just be all pirates all the time. Do it. This is now a pirate podcast. This is now a pirate <laughs> podcast. Um, I am not sorry. Because pirates are fucking awesome. Uh, You know what? Sometimes I have to be not sorry as a Canadian. That is true. Uh, All right. So at the end of our last episode, there was a question about pirates in um in eastern countries uh and i didn't obviously take much time to look into them or build much of a story at that point because there was already a lot to kind of process when it just came to the atlantic seas um like the Caribbean and everything that was going on there as well. So, uh, of particular interest to me, anyway, was the story of uh, Ching Shi. And she was actually the, uh, considered to be the most successful pirate of the um, of the era. Uh, and in fact, nice. she was kind of outside. She actually pirated outside of the um, of what they considered the golden age of, uh, of piracy. Uh, it was mostly in the late, or sorry, the eight, early 1800s, about the first 10 years of the 1800s. So, to start off this whole thing, uh, we first kind of need to know how it all started. Um, At the time, uh, in in China, from 1644 to uh, the mid-1800s was when the Qing Dynasty um, was uh, was in power. It was probably considered one of the more successful of the dynasties. It was also the last dynasty 
in China before they sort of moved on to uh, less imperial governments, quote, quote. Um, but at the time, obviously, there were still uh, pirates and piracy was still a thing. So one of the most successful pirate commanders of the time was uh, Sheng Yi. And he commanded the fleet called the Red Flag Fleet. Now, he wasn't exactly the most interesting of people, but he had a rel relatively large fleet to begin with. Um, now, he did have a couple notable, uh, notable feats under his belt already before marrying uh, Qingxi. Uh, one of those being building the Red Flag Fleet and bringing together rival pirate crews under a single flag. Uh, basically being like, how about instead of you trying to kill each other, we're all going to work together and rule or attempt to rule this section of the South China Sea. Uh, eventually, though, he ran into uh, Qingxi. She was a sex worker in the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s. And she worked on a floating brothel in the city of Canton. Uh, and really cool yeah right <laughs> <laughs> just just roll up to a floating house Isn't um, that, they had a lot of those in japan as well yeah uh, i will get to japan on my next piracy oh hell yeah <clears throat> nice yeah um but yeah she she worked at this brothel for a number of years and uh, Sheng Yi came in and decided that he wanted to marry her in particular. So his thought was not so much that it was this beautiful sex worker that he had seen over and over, but it was the fact that she was a particularly adept businesswoman. She had been known to understand the business um, that she was obviously participating in quite well. She knew business in general. And he figured, what better person to help me build my empire than someone who just knows business and people and money? And eventually, in 1801, the two of them get married. Now, being the savvy businesswoman that she is, she specifically said, unless we have it in our marriage contract, uh, that I have basically a 50% stake in the fleet this isn't going to happen. And he said, yep, good, let's do it. 
This is a partnership. We're doing this. Um, so immediately when they were married, it was the two of them running the business together. That's shockingly progressive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm impressed. And it one thing that is really interesting is that uh and it and I will it, it'll pop up a little bit later, but um unlike the superstitions in the Western piracy world, um, there were actually a few smatterings of women within crews um, in the South China Sea and within uh, and on any ships. It wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't taboo. It wasn't bad luck, uh, and most of uh, most and none of the crews thought that having women on the boats would cause division. They were just another part of the crew. No super, real like superstitions around it or anything. Well, in uh if you remember like in our oh, I don't you weren't there on the recording. Hi, yeah, <laughs> I'm coming in blind. <laughs> so in the uh the western um pirate crews had a superstition that women on the boat were bad luck. Mm-hmm. And also that women on the boat would cause division among uh, the crew. Okay. So they were strictly banned in uh, in Western piracy crews. So when women came aboard, they were generally disguising themselves as men. Uh, and that was that was among pirates. That was among traders and uh, and navy crew as well. So it didn't matter. It was basically superstition among the seas, basically. Uh, that does didn't exist in uh, in the South China Seas or in anywhere in China, as far as I could find out. Uh, which is really cool. Yeah. Um. So one of the one of the cool things is that due to um, it being a relatively prosperous time um, for China in general, it was probably a pretty good time for pirates as well. Um, although they obviously a lot of the time would hit, you know, fishing villages where it was a little easier to get in and out. Um, probably still poorer places. Um, but at the same time, you know, commerce was okay. Uh, things were were flowing within the nation, which meant that there was a little more to go around. Um, an interesting fact is that when Qingxi and Shangyi married, uh, she not only supported him in his in the business and helping him run the fleet, but she also took part in raids and whatever they were doing. So it wasn't just I'm going to sit back and control the money. She's like, nope, I'm going out there with you. And if we need to cut people up and capture people, I'm in it. Let's do this. After about six years of yeah, after about six years of marriage, Shang Yi would die at 
the age of 42. Um, now, whether he was murdered uh, on an excursion or whether he died at sea, nobody can totally confirm. Uh, there is a rumor that if he had died at sea, at, sorry, at sea, his boat had been hit by a tsunami and the whole crew went. Um, however, because of this, uh, because of his death, Xing Chi was left in a bit of a weird position. Um, because her late husband had adopted an adult son to inherit his fortune. So, this is uh, this is sort of a it was a pretty common thing. Um, I don't know if it's still a common thing, but it was a pretty common thing at that time where people would adult uh, would adopt adults uh, if they didn't have children of their own uh, under basically to to pass off the business to someone that they um, that they trusted or to keep a legacy alive. Um, or often as like a discipleship kind of thing. So, interestingly enough, uh, this man, uh, Chung Po Sai, was not only his heir apparent, but his lover. Uh, oh. Yeah. I haven't heard that before. So, yeah. Uh, Shang Chi. Uh, sorry, Sheng Yi um, adopted Chung Po Sai as his as his heir, uh, but there was also a um, a sexual relationship between the two. So he was married to Ching Shi, uh, and he had his his adopted heir, adult heir, on the side as his lover. Um, All right then. So, at this point, her husband dies. The marriage contract is null and void. The, the adopted son is there to inherit the fleet. And Ching Shi, at this point, is sort of left in the lurch with no... Um, with no recourse. Uh, so she does fucking probably what I would do, and she d decides to start a relationship with Chung Po Sai. Um, eventually marrying him, and wrestle taking back control of the fleet, hmm. being like. No, no, this is mine. <laughs> I'm sure you don't know how to do this. It's fine. Let me deal with it. Um, so that is essentially how she became the first female commander um, to ever have like any well basically one of two female commanders in a history of any fleet or at least a pirate fleet 
Um, the other being uh, Han Cholo, who operated in the early 1900s. Uh, and I didn't go too much into her because I didn't know how long this was going to take today. So, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, in contrast to the Western pirates, women weren't barred from being uh, being on pirate boats. Uh, the stigma of bad luck or crew controversy didn't really permeate the ranks in in South China. Um, at one point, uh, Richard Glasspool, who is an employee of the East India Trading Company, was captured. Um, him and his boat were held for about four months before being released. And he was able to take stock of her whole fleet. So by his account, there was about 80,000 people in the fleet. There was a thousand large junk boats, 800 smaller junk boats, and various rowboats that all comprised this fleet. Holy shit. Yeah. How big was the contemporary British Navy at the time? What year was it? 18? Uh, it would have been like 18, 1807, 1806, when, wow. um, when she... Looking, uh, sorry, I just really, I, got, I, did, I heard that, I'm like, that's so many fucking people? That is so yeah. many fucking people. So many people. Yeah. Uh, but in 18, 1808 was when, oh, sorry, 1809 was when uh, Glasspool and his boat were taken. So. so I found like a little tiny snippet of information, but apparently in like 1810, the British fleet had 183 cruisers, but that didn't include coastal patrol vessels, minesweepers, and icebreakers. Because this is like a full from like mm -hmm. 1650 to 2017. So yep. like 183 boats versus how many did she have? 18. Yeah. Her, what the fuck? Yeah. Queen yeah. Elizabeth who? <laughs> so Ching Shi uh, would use a strict pirate code of her own making to unite all 80,000 of these people. Um, uh, a few pieces of note. Uh, any pirate found giving their own orders or disobeying their superior would be beheaded on the spot. Holy shit. Yeah. That's intense. It's <laughs> care of meet me, I guess. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Dang. Female captives would be safe from assault. Uh, a crew member caught raping a captive female would be killed. Just straight up. You're fucked. Fucking good. If yeah, it was, was consensual <laughs> between the captive and the member of the boat, they would both be killed. Oh. Interesting. Okay. I guess you can't well, really consent a in that position. Like... Captive, a captive is a bargaining tool, right? Yeah, that's true. So, not not that I'm saying it's right, but I get it. I get where they're coming from. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and there's that power imbalance, too, so. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there were other options, though. Uh, a captive female could be taken as a wife, but the pirate would have to be faithful to them. 
So if they married and that pirate was found to be unfaithful, there would be some consequences for that guy. Wow. wow. <laughs> uh, captains, however, were allowed to take multiple wives. Captains or sailors? Captains. Oh, captains. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was during... pretty typical, though, in like the time, wasn't it? Like, if you could support them, you could get them. I think so. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, during raids, twenty percent of the loot was allowed to be kept by the captain. So basically, whatever whatever you brought in, twenty percent was for you and your and your crew. The rest would be sent to a central pot that was used to finance the fleet. Uh, if you were caught hoarding treasure, you'd lose an ear. Wow. On your second offense, it would be the rest of your head. Nice. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, much like the code of some of the Western pirates, there was also health benefits and compensation for injury. Uh, and there was also even retirement benefits for anyone who had to retire or was old enough to retire, basically. I'm going to leave the life. Peace out. Okay, here is a lump of treasure to keep yourself going through your retirement. Or you lost an arm. Here is a lump of treasure because you no longer have your arm. South Asian pirates had better health care than we in retirement than we were <laughs> going to in the US. That pirates. sucks. Pirates in, pirates in general. Yeah. Time the, to what... go be a pirate. <laughs> uh, so I will I will reiterate uh, what you missed the last time, but Ew. if you lost in Western pirates had some Western pirates had a code where if you if you lost a, uh, like if you lost a foot, you would get like six hundred pieces of eight, which is whatever your allotment is of the treasure. Um, if you lost an eye, you would get two hundred. If you okay. went blind, you would then get two thousand. Holy shit! Um, like there was compensation for losing limbs and getting sick and so on. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pirates pirates had better health care. <laughs> I hate Oh, I hate it and I like it at the same time. I don't know how to feel. <laughs> uh, I like it. Let's go be pirates. Let's go. It's, I don't go, think it's as glamorous these days. I, I mean, Yay. it never was glamorous, but, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, it's definitely not as cool, I feel. No, it's not. Um, so at one point, uh, the Imperial government sent their admiral, Kuo Lang, uh, to try and take out her fleet. The battle ended very poorly for the government. Uh, when Ching Shi captured 63 of his boats, Holy most fuck. of which would end up joining her fleet. And Kuo Lang would die by suicide in response to the devastating loss. Damn. Uh, over the next two years after that, 
the Portuguese and the Dutch fleets would also be sent and defeated. Uh, the British East Indian Trading Company would send their Marquis of Ely, uh, which was captured and held for four months, and that was the above Richard Glasspool's boat, uh, who is one of the very first, uh, one of their very few first-person accounts of Qingxi's fleet. Um, as well, the village of Sanshan uh, also sent out a fleet to oppose her red fleet. They were eventually raided, and all of the males were beheaded because of that. Wow. Oh. Yeah. So in 1810, nine years after her sorry, marriage to uh, Xing Yi, Xi would finally retire. So after two and a half, three years of notoriety among the South China Seas, a long streak of being undefeated by multiple fleets, um, she decided that it was time, basically. Um, at some, it, it's mostly expected that because of the mounting pressure from the Qing Dynasty, the Portuguese Navy, uh, the East Indian Trading Company, she eventually had to rethink her position. So it, what happened was she was eventually caught off guard by, I believe it's the Portuguese fleet, and suffered a lot of losses. Um, but also at the same time, there was an ongoing conflict with the Black Flag Fleet, another group of, uh, another pirate fleet. And the ongoing conflict between the two meant major, had seen major losses on either side. Um, so that compiled with being surprised by the Portuguese fleet, uh, and seeing a sort of a, a dwindling of her fleet and seeing that her people were being killed off, basically, uh, she figured it was time. So one thing that we know about her retirement is that she surrendered. She negotiated that her fleet would be disbanded and many of her people would be safe to go. Uh, when the negotiations were settled, uh, 126 people were executed. Uh, 200 were banished from China. And 18,000 were pardoned. Wow. Ching uh, Shi took her money. Uh, was assumed to have lived a peaceful life until she passed away at the age of 69 in 1844. Nice. Um, the other, other rumors say that she found a place to retire and ran a gambling house during her retirement, which seems more likely to me. Uh, and because of all of this, uh, she's still considered the most successful pirate to this day. Uh, and if anyone has seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the inspiration of Mistress Shing 
uh, sorry, Mr. Ching is one of the nine pirate lords um, came was was from her basically. So yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> Pirates. Pirates. Yo ho fiddle. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Holly, uh, near you. I can go. Yes. Sure. So interesting. It. Yes. So, um, we have, I, I previously talked about rabies and just like how the world is trying to kill us. I would also like to talk about lead and how the world is trying to kill us. How we try to kill ourselves. How we, how we tried to and still are. Uh, we'll definitely talk about that. But this, I, I really, rabies was like kind of an all encompassing, like a wide scope, right? I didn't focus on one person or group or anything. But I had heard the name Claire Patterson before and was like, okay, this is the guy. I heard it in the context of this is the guy who created kind of the world's first clean room. And then I started to dig into his history and realized that he was responsible for a lot of the reasons why we are not all dying of lead poisoning, which is pretty incredible considering <laughs> how he started out. Um so yes, the world is, of course, uh, terrifying and always trying to kill us. Um, babies, uh, earthquakes, all of it. Just, you know, uh, it's horrifying stuff. Um, so lead, though, is everywhere on our little blue dot. And that exposure can cause all kinds of issues. In a more modern age, we mostly think about lead exposure when it comes to children putting things in their mouths that have lead or in them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, candy toys. Um, we'll talk about lead paint in houses, particularly in the U.S., which is still an issue in certain parts of the country. Um, but lead is everywhere on the planet. And for a very long time, we did not understand how dangerous it actually is. So. I always think about lead exposure with paint. Um, lead was originally added to paint to, uh, quote, speed up drying, increase durability, maintain the color, and resist moisture. And it's interesting because we used to advertise this shit. I actually have a couple of um, really cool images for y'all. So here's a, here's a, a Dutch, it's Dutch boy paint, which still exists, but this is lead advertisement yeah <laughs> it's amazing I it. that's I know, so right? like that feels so dystopian it, fe it feels like it belongs fallout. in a fallout video game yep it's very fallout yep they drew a lot of inspiration from these old advertisements yeah. um it's it's horrifying so here's actually an old paint can from the dutch boy white lead line from mostly the 40s and 50s um oh i thought this God. was really interesting so there's the front of the can and here's the back of the can white lead baby hot mm. look at that look at that i was like what okay um we you know this was cosmetics cosmetics coal yeah. still can have it in it um yeah there are there are 
Claire Patterson's work was actually responsible for a lot of the reasons why it is not in so many things anymore, but it is very hard to get rid of. Um, Mm. It's, it's really interesting though, but we've been using lead in paints in particular or cosmetics for centuries. So in the fourth century BC, there were, we found them, there were earthenware pots painted with lead and then those were fired in kilns And the workers who would fire these pots often suffered things like apoplexy, epilepsy, and paralysis from working with the lead. They didn't live very long. And this was cited all the way back then in literature. Um, In 1786, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter, uh, quote, warning a friend about the hazards of lead and lead paint, which he considered to be well-established. In 1786, hmm. and yet we kept still putting it in things. Cause people are really good cool at like listening that. to stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're really good at listening to science and and experts, as we will find out with Claire Patterson. No one listened to him for a very long time. <laughs> um, so this this common form of lead, which was eventually called lead white, was also widely used by artists until about the 19th century. Uh, and then it was eventually um, replaced by things like zinc. So, uh, and then since the middle of the 20th century, many countries have banned the use of lead in paints and many other products. Uh, we did in, in the U.S. in 1978. But there are other countries like India that didn't ban its use until very recently. In the case of India, 2016. Jesus. Yeah, and it is still a massive problem there. It's in the water supply, like it's it is it's very bad. Um, so when I look at the history of uh, paint and and lead paint in particular in the U.S., so houses built in the U.S. before 1978, which was not that long ago, <laughs> um, they were filled with lead. When the that paint peels or cracks it makes lead paint chips and dust and even breathing in the dust can cause health issues but uh, eerily enough a little bit like rabies a lot of times in particular children who are exposed to um lead paint uh they show no signs at first there's no symptoms or maybe some very mild ones like headaches and fatigue, maybe a fever, which could easily be mistaken for a simple viral infection. Um, but long-term exposure to lead is, of course, deadly. Uh, in children in the 70s and 80s, scientists started to note that this exposure was causing behavioral problems, learning difficulties, lowered IQ, hyperactivity, we'll talk about that, uh, growth mm-hmm. delays, and hearing problems. And in adults, it's even worse, actually. It can cause hypertension, uh, kidney problems, and fertility and reproductive issues. And once you are exposed to a certain amount of lead, they're, they're just it, it, we have all probably been exposed at one point or another. The effects of it are irreversible. There is no way to fix the damage that's been done. All you can do is remove yourself from wherever you were exposed. It's wild. Um, and if you continue to be exposed to high levels of lead, again, usually paint was a really good book, um, a source of it, but we'll talk about gasoline too. It can cause seizures, unconsciousness. Toys. Yep. And death. Yeah. Gun ranges. Yeah. Lead bullets. Like, dude. <laughs> so when I was in high school, we had people on my team who used to put bullets in their mouth and we had to tell them mm-hmm. not to. 
And then our range was actually shut down when the year I quit. Um, like I quit for different reasons, but uh, it was shut down because there was too much lead. Oh my god! And it was they were concerned about the levels. No. So we, yeah. No. No. <laughs> it. It. No. <laughs> it makes you wonder just... if like Ugh. it has anything to do with why gun nuts are so gun nutty. You know. We'll talk just about just that. Yep. <laughs> Great. It, it, on bullets, yeah, yeah. There, there are in that dust. there are ties being made now, um, right now, by scientists about behavioral issues and aggression in boomers and Gen Xers. So, so yeah, kind of makes sense. It's a little scary. Not um, saying, just saying. Yeah, just, yep. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting rabbit trail to go down. Um, so yeah, the soil, pottery, toys, cosmetics, certain herbal and folk remedies, uh, Mexican candy, lead bullets, working in certain occupations like auto repair, mining, pipe fitting, battery manufacturing, and construction. Those all come with an increased risk of lead exposure. And now there are really tight restrictions on imports and exports, particularly imports coming from places like Mexico and Asia um, when it comes to the fact that they didn't ban lead in their materials until very recently. So, or, you know, there's shoddy uh, oversight of the manufacturing process. Things are made in old factories with old pipes that then pick a, the water picks up the lead from the pipes. And it it's, yeah, it's horrifying. Lead is in everything. And the reason that we know this is because of Claire Patterson. So he was born in Iowa on June 2nd, 1922. And he was a very smart kid almost from the get-go. He had a curiosity about the world around him very early on. And this was encouraged by his parents. So combining that natural curiosity with parental encouragement and his very sharp mind, he pursued as much schooling as he could get his hands on, basically. He graduated from high school at 16, and then four years later earned a degree in chemistry from Grinnell College, which is in Iowa. And that is where he met his future wife, Lorna. These two are actually really, really cute together. Like, they stay together their entire lives. They have kids. They go to school together. They're both researchers. I was like, oh, look at the little science researchers. <laughs> I love them. Uh, here is a picture of him in his lab. This is Mr. Claire Patterson uh, in the 50s when he was starting to do work actually on a meteorite that we'll talk about um, that led him to figure some of this out. It's really interesting. Space led. Yeah. Uh, so he meets his future wife, Lorna, and then they both go to the University of Iowa. And this is where Patterson earned a master's degree in molecular spectroscopy, which I did not know what that was, so I looked it up. Uh, it is the measure of interactions between electromagnetic waves and matter. So basically, uh, uh, how, how we see prisms and color. So he got a master's degree in this at like 22. I was like, dude. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And it eventually leads to how radiations are classified, radio waves, microwaves, infrared, and on and on. So, um, yep. Uh, he and his wife were eventually both sent to work on the Manhattan Project. Oh, oh fun. First, yeah, at the University of Chicago. And then they moved to Tennessee a few years later. 
And this is where Patterson was introduced uh, to mass spectrometry. And this would change the course of his studies. And actually, really, it changed the course of the world. So mass spectrometry, on the other hand, which I think more people are, are familiar with the term, uh, it's an analytical technique that's used to measure mass to charge ratio of ions. And the results are presented as a mass spectrum. A plot of intensity as a function of the mass to charge ratio. It's used in a ton of different fields. It's how we pull uh, everything from pure samples from rock or soil or, or really basically anything all the way down to complex mixtures in order to break them down into their distinctive elements. So that was really cool. Um, so while his wife takes a research job as an infrared spectro spectrocopist, wow, it's hard to say, very smart people, <laughs> very, very, very smart people here. Uh, and she, she took the job in order to support him during his PhD. And this is where, uh, during that program, he makes a lot of really early discoveries. He initially worked with his advisor, who was a man named Harrison Brown, and a lab partner named George Tilton. And they were trying to age, like, find the geological age of zircons, which is an element of rock. So zircon is used in dating because when they're formed... They possess these little imperfections of uranium, but no lead. And so the theory was, if there's any lead present in the zircon, it has to come from the decay of uranium. And this is where we start doing geological dating. So, and there's a lot of like, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything around this stuff, but it's called UPB dating. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, so I apologize to any scientists or mass spectrometrists listening. If we do have one, I would love to talk to you because I find this fascinating. But I, I know don't a little bit it. about it. It's um, so cool. It's also how they kind yeah. of figured out arrows different dinosaurs were into. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. They do a lot of stuff with like, so like chemicals have what they call a half-life. And uranium mm -hmm. has a really long half-life. And so you can you can figure out how old something is by the half-life of... They also do carbon dating. The okay. half-life of the carbon that's involved. Because like as, as carbon decays, because everything decays over time, that's how entropy works, um, mm -hmm. it gives off electrons. And so you'll have different isotopes, which are just... It's carbon still, but it's carbon with like slightly different numbers of electrons in the outer circle. Okay. And that's how you can tell how old the carbon... Like, by how many of these isotopes are in the item, that's how you can tell how old it is. I think that is so fucking cool. Like, <laughs> it's really neat. Like, when someone figures shit out like that, you're like, oh, that's so simple. But, like, beautiful and genius at the same time. Yes. Oh, my like, gosh. That's... Figure that out. Because, yeah. like, the whole figuring it out thing is just... It's bonkers. Yeah. Like, yeah, also, bonkers. I don't... Like, I don't, I had to, like, dig in my brain for that, because I was like, this sounds so familiar. But, like, also, <laughs> I find that when you think about, when I think about chemistry too much like that, when I get down to, like, quantum physics and shit, it's, it becomes more and more magical, and I'm afraid if I think about it too much, it'll stop working. Um, <laughs> because, okay. like, the fact that we can touch things and that there's actually space between atoms freaks me the fuck out. Yeah. So, <laughs> Like if I dear, think about it too hard, am I just going to like disappear into like, space dust? That's like 
me and Asian airplanes, man. If I know how airplanes actually work, if I could actually oh my put my brain around it, fuck it. I it wouldn't work anymore and I would die in the next time I got on. Yep. 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 Airplanes I, are magic. Yep. Chemistry and physics is magic. Uh, I just dope. know how to make them kind of work. Hell yeah. That's, I mean, that's what, that's what he, and that's what Patterson and his lab assistant, his lab partner, Tilton were doing. So they were actually trying to figure out the composition of primordial lead in the earth, which would then wow. allow them to figure out the age of the solar system and in turn the earth by using the same techniques on meteorites. So that's where we'll talk about the no. uh, Canyon Diablo meteorite, which I have a picture of, which is really cool. Uh, so this is the Canyon Diablo meteorite that he and Tilton, that Patterson and Tilton worked on. This is where they started pulling samples to figure out the age of the solar system. Just that little thing. Jesus. Just, you know, Wild. a really good chunk of metal. I know. I know. Every time like I see this thing. Oh, every time I see meteorite metal like this, I just think of fucking Avatar and Sokka making a meteorite space sword. Mm -hmm. How much I would love to have a space sword. Oh, yes. What? Yeah, 535 pounds. I know you can get a space rock. I know people do uh, wedding rings and stuff that you can get made out of meteorite or dinosaur bone, and I thought that was pretty cool. So cool. That is so cool. I saw the Smithsonian had fountain pens that they did dinosaur bone like patterns on, and I was like, uh, That's really neat. Dope. I want one of those. I know. I did too. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'll ever um, use it, but... but it's real pretty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they started their work in 1948, of course, a few years after the end of World War II. Um, but his end of the research, Patterson's end of the research kept being delayed. So Tilton, his lab partner, would give him samples. And then Patterson was particularly looking at the lead in the samples. And he realized that these samples kept being contaminated. And it made no sense because they knew the age of the rock from which their, their zircon camp, uh, samples came. His lab partner, Tilton's measurements seemed to be in line. And here Patterson is like throwing up his hands. He's totally baffled, but he is a very good scientist. And I can say that with like certain confidence. Um, he wanted to know why, why is this happening? What is going on? How can we prevent it? And so uh, after six years, they spent six years doing this. Uh, and this was well after earning his PhD, he and Tilton are no closer to determining the age of the earth or understanding why his lead samples were contaminated. So it's one of those like constant problems where he's scratching his head going, I know I can figure this out, but I'm not sure what the process is. And this is where we bring in uh, a mass spectrometer. So in 1953, his advisor, Harrison Brown, brings Patterson to Caltech so they could work on a commission for this new mass spectrometer and Patterson could build his own lab from scratch. Talk about like free reign. That's like the scientist free reign. Like here, you can do whatever you need to do. Yeah. The dream. Yeah. Yeah. The dream. Totally. So this is the part of this guy's genius. Patterson decides he's going to secure all points of entry for air and other contaminants. I apologize. Is there a mower? Can y'all hear that? No. Nope. No. 
Thank God. Okay. <laughs> I was worried because it's like right there. Oh my God. Um, so he secures all points of entry for air and other contaminants. He acid cleans all lab apparatuses and even distilled all of his chemicals shipped to him. And his desire to solve this problem, he creates one of the world's first clean room. And it works. So he's able to continue work on this Canyon Diablo meteorite and eventually extract uncontaminated lead samples. Crazy stuff. Um, so in 1956, only three years later, after he builds his lab, Patterson publishes a paper called The Age of Meteorites and the Earth. And it's the first paper containing the true age of the solar system. Before this, it was widely accepted that the Earth was roughly 3.3 billion years old, and we now know that it is 4.543 billion years, and that is because Patterson figured it out from a meteorite. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> but he still had this, this issue of, of the lead sample. Um, so his discovery, as massive as it was about the age of the solar system, this wasn't the only thing that Patterson discovered. So while he's refining his paper on the Canyon Diablo meteorite, he's also finding lead everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And he then dedicates the next nine, almost 10 years to trying to figure out why all of this occurred and why his lead samples, why he was having trouble with his lead samples. So in 1965, uh, he publishes a paper titled Contaminated and Natural Lead Environments of Man in an attempt to draw public attention to the problem of increased lead levels in everything. Uh, the environment, and the food chain. And his conclusion was a lot of the problem was largely man-made. That is not shocking to us now, but at the time, it was like, what? We didn't do this. It's just the earth. <laughs> and a lot of people were like, no, that can't be. Um, they were totally about, what do you mean that my tuna cans have lead in them? That was a big, big issue. Um <laughs> So the paper that he put together really didn't have the immediate effect that he was hoping for. And it, in fact, drew ire from other scientists, especially ones who were recognized as experts in fields like food production, industrialization, and my favorite, the gasoline companies. They actually might be my favorite <laughs> next to the tobacco companies. I know we're all laughing because we know where this goes. We're like, fucking ass. All right. <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, so I got to go down a little bit of a side trail with a man named Robert A. Kehoe. He was Patterson's biggest critic. Uh, Kehoe was an American toxicologist who worked on behalf, of course, of the lead industry, including the manufacturing of leaded gasoline and the lead acid batteries. Kehoe is what I would definitely call a bad scientist on the, the perfect foil for Patterson. Uh, he was driven solely by money and power over the advancement of scientific discoveries and the health and well-being of his fellow humans. Kehoe even multiple times claimed that, quote, the presence of lead in humans and other organisms was normal and that exposure to low levels of lead was not harmful. Incorrect! <laughs> Just wrong in general. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's a, that's a ballsy I hate fucking him so much. Yep, like those kinds of people can't call themselves scientists. Like, no, it's pure greed. It's pure greed. Yeah, 
Yeah. Pure greed and power tripping. Um, we're at, you're about to hate him more, so strap in here, Courtney, because here we go. <laughs> so um, there's something called the Kehoe Rule or the Kehoe Paradigm that came out of his testimony in a conference in 1925. And I'm going to I'm going to quote this whole thing because it kind of wraps it up in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. Kehoe offered while speaking on behalf of the companies engaged in the ethyl and lead gasoline enterprise that to continue the sale of gasoline containing lead, you could only do it if it could be shown that an actual danger is had as a result. But he reasoned that if it could not be shown on the basis of facts, a product this economically beneficial should not be thrown into the discard on the basis of opinions. So he was essentially saying Patterson's full of shit. It's an opinion. Mine is you can't prove to me that this is dangerous, but I can prove to you that this is economically beneficial to the gasoline companies. Therefore, I win. Ha ha ha. Why oh does God. this remind me of mask mandates? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little Schrodinger's cat, too, because it's like, is the cat alive? Is the cat dead? We don't know until we open the box. And his is like, is this economically beneficial? Yes, but we don't know if it's going to kill people until 40 years down the line. So who cares? Yeah, this dude sucks. Um. And it, this this really weird, uh, greedy power imbalance line of reasoning was eventually called the Kehoe Rule. Um, it acted as a decision rule, setting out a choice point and two alternative paths that could be followed, depending on what was shown as proof at that choice point. This is just like so much bullshit. Uh, it allowed him to sidestep any immediate concerns about lead and gasoline by saying there could be an issue, but there was no evidence in the immediate to support such a claim. His lab, which was then charged with finding, if any, health effects from lead exposure, was able to control the research and dominate that realm of science for decades, allowing gasoline companies to continue using lead. And this was Patterson's biggest expert or biggest naysayer. So they went head to head for about 20 years. Being like, no, no, this is not how this works. Um, so Patterson was noting uh, that global lead contamination was taking place. So this is in the 50s and 60s, just for a timeline. Uh, and that it had, quote, gradually started with the Industrial Revolution, but it had markedly accelerated once leaded gasoline had entered the market. He called their shit out. And of course, that pissed the entire gasoline industry off, including their paid expert in this Robert Kehoe guy. But um, they're never not angry, right? Like, Right, exactly, exactly. Much like America, they have been at war since fucking forever. <laughs> <laughs> since Henry oh, Ford and anti-Semite put cars on the road. Yeah, it's... Um, so these two are butting heads every time they turn around and the power of the gasoline industries and people like Kehoe was so strong that Claire Patterson was eventually refused contracts with many research organizations, including the supposedly neutral United States public health service. And in 1971, Patterson was excluded from an NRC, which is the national national research council panel on atmospheric lead conditions even though he was then the foremost expert on the subject. He was, they, they said, nah, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to be here. 
That's about right. Yeah. So blind greed and lobbying and science. Woo. Here we go. Um, eventually, though, Patterson's efforts did pay off. And it really was just his his determination and desire to make sure that more people didn't get sick. Like, talk about a, a genuine scientist and a genuine human. This is what we want. Um, so eventually, with these efforts paying off, we have the 1970 Clean Air Act, and then eventually a global effort to remove lead from gasoline and other products. And all of this grew directly out of Patterson's work and the increased public awareness that he fought so hard for. It's really impossible to know exactly the impact of Patterson's work on global health, but there continues to be compelling evidence. Now, this is where we start to talk about behavior and behavioral science tied to lead. Um, so the rise in violent crime in the U.S. in the 1960s and 1970s, and then its rapid decline in the 1990s, can be directly tied to lead's prevalence in the atmosphere. And if you're interested in this, anyone, doesn't matter who I'm talking to, I'm talking to y'all, I'm talking to people listening. Um, there's an article from 2013 in Mother Jones, and we'll link it. It's called Lead, America's Real Criminal Element. It's fascinating read. It's a long read, so settle in for it, but it's really worth it. And the author's conclusions make it pretty clear that lead, quote, may explain as much as 90% of the rise and fall of violent crime over the past half century. What? Yes. Yes. So here we go. Big quote section here for y'all. Quote, the biggest source of lead in the post-war era, it turns out, wasn't paint. It was leaded gasoline. And if you chart the rise and fall of atmospheric lead caused by the rise and fall of leaded gasoline consumption, you get a pretty simple upside down U. Lead emissions from tailpipes rose steadily from the early 40s through the early 70s nearly quadrupling over that period. Then, as unleaded gasoline began to replace leaded gasoline, emissions plummeted. Intriguingly, violent crime rates followed the same upside-down U pattern. The only thing different was the time period. Crime rates rose dramatically in the 60s through the 80s and then began dropping steadily starting in the early 90s. The two curves look eerily identical, but were offset by about 20 years. Digging up detailed data on lead emissions and crime rates to see if the similarity of the curves was as good as it seemed, well, it turned out to be even better. A 2000 paper concluded that if you add a lag time of 23 years, lead emissions from automobiles explain 90% of the variation in violent crime in America. Toddlers who ingested high levels of lead in the 40s and 50s really were more likely to be violent criminals in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So the conclusion off of that is when the differences of atmospheric lead density between big and small cities largely went away because big cities have more cars, more population, there's more going on. And when all of that went away, so did the difference in murder rates and high childhood lead exposure damages a part of the brain linked to aggression control. And this impact is greater among boys. Holy shit. Yep. That's fucked up. Gets fucked up. And if Patterson hadn't done what he did, we would not know any of this. And we would be in a distinctly far worse place. We would have a lot of people. It cuts life expectancy. It cuts IQ. Um, it can it can cut anywhere between five and ten points off of IQ, which is huge. 
it, yeah, it's it it's truly wild. And this guy figured it out. His work started to lead, and I should say, lead into the research that eventually came to that conclusion. Um, so despite the gasoline industry's best efforts to defund Claire Patterson completely, he did eventually receive support from the U.S. government, a couple of branches of the armed forces like the Navy and the National Science Foundation, to name just a few. And this increase in research funds let Patterson take a team to Greenland to study the ice sheets under the theory uh, that uh, if lead accumulated in our oceans, it has to accumulate in the ice as well, which seems common sense to us right now. But, you know, people weren't really taking out ice cores too much uh, before wow. Patterson did. And that's that's exactly what he did. He was he was working directly with ice cores from the Greenland ice sheets. And he was able to look at the striations in the ice cores and then study how much lead was present in past centuries. His conclusion that before the introduction of tetraethyl lead, can't talk, uh, there was almost no lead in the atmosphere. We created this problem. Um, I wanted to show you all when we were talking about the crime rates, this really interesting chart from Mother Jones. Um, what happens when you expose a generation of kids to high lead levels? Crime and teak pregnancy data two decades tell the story. And here's the U shapes that you see. Um, Holy shit. Yep. Yep. Hate it. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Patterson did a lot more work in the 70s and 80s, too. And remember, this guy was born in 1922. So he has been working the bulk of the 20th century just to get people to understand how dangerous lead is. So in 1979, he conducted an analysis of 1600 year old bones from the Peruvian Indians. And he discovered that they held a vastly smaller amount of lead than the bones of modern-day humans. Patterson used his lab at Caltech to measure the amount of lead in canned tuna. Other labs had shown that there was no difference in the amount of lead in canned tuna and fresh tuna. However, Patterson was able to find that there was a thousand-fold difference in the amounts of lead in fresh tuna than in canned tuna. And this find would be applied to all fresh and canned fish, thus showing that lead should not be used in commercial products. What the fuck? Wow. Yup. <laughs> it, I was like, what the hell? And this applies even to modern day because 1978, when lead paint was banned in the US, it's not that far. And leaded oh. gasoline wasn't banned until the 90s. So I, I was born in 85. Like, I wow. have been exposed to things. <laughs> and people <laughs> 10 years older than me have been exposed to incredible amounts of lead and this is where we're starting to see problems i i consider myself lucky to have been born in the mid 80s when this was more kind of an awareness because it, it's it's having impacts now so um it's really too bad that we didn't ban lead and things like gasoline and the products earlier you know our cars are lead free today but all that lead spewed into the atmosphere had to go somewhere and a lot of it wound up in our soil so as subsequent studies have shown, even minuscule amounts of lead are linked to attention deficit, a deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And children now may be affected by what was spewed out of tailpipes in the U.S. for 50 plus years. And there have been suggestions that the rise of aggression and decrease in critical thinking skills and IQ in boomers and Gen Xers can also be tied directly to lead exposure from their childhoods. Now, obviously, 
it is not a catch-all, right? But there are some patterns that are being exposed. And I, have, I, I went and looked at two studies, um, so I'll quote from those. In the first one, quote, researchers found that estimated lead-linked deficits were greatest for people born between 1966 and 1970, which is a population of about 21 million people in the U.S., and they experienced an average, average deficit of 5.9 IQ points per person. Wow. Um, Wow. And then one study based out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio in 2001, for instance, found that young adults who had high exposures to lead as children were more likely to display psychological traits that included impulsivity and egocentricity, traits that ultimately impact a person's ability to regulate their emotions. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's, not... there's something there. There's something there. Um, it, it, it's actively being worked on right now because people are to be like, oh, these boobers, ha ha. It's like <laughs> some of it legitimately might not be their fault. Some of it is, but some of it may be triggered by the lead, the incredible amounts of lead they were exposed to as children. Yeah. 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 Um, so in conclusion from all of that, we are still understanding the impacts of Patterson's work and the fight to regulate chemicals is ongoing, but without him, we can't begin to calculate what might have happened with more lead in our air, water, and soil. And that is Claire Patterson's story. A person who we should all hold up as the epitome of a good scientist. Yeah. Wow. I do want to like, say... Oh, yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say two quick things. Just about uh, IQ tests are being re-examined because they're they've been found to be kind of um racist kind of ableist and, and racist ableist yeah. and eugenic-y so like Ugh. it's been used yeah it yeah uh yeah. so it's been used used for those sorts of things and like to claim that's but it's also been shown to like skew skew to make white people seem more intelligent and then also as a tool to like control people with quote-unquote lower IQs or vilify them. So I just wanted to say that in case someone out there was like, IQ tests are bullshit and you guys shouldn't be using them. Like, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, and the other thing, I'm not trying to play like devil's advocate, but like we always say in science that correlation is not causation. But when you have something like this, it's pretty compelling. Yeah, it's it's there's definitely not enough uh, solid, like, real evidence yet that lead is causing some of these boomers and Gen Xers to absolutely lose their, yeah. their bananas. But it is starting to be, like, more and more scientists are doing these studies and, like, oh, you found that out too, huh? Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, so it's ongoing. Like, yeah, and it's really hard to isolate that kind of stuff because... Like the world is messy and so many factors factor totally. in, and it's really hard to say. But when you have something like that where you can strongly correlate, like, oh, like consistently lead is coming up as a factor, then yeah, it points. Right. And, also, and there are so many, out. yeah, bullets. There are still so many houses that have yeah. lead paint in them or have, um, you know, bits, well, windowsills, especially have been yeah. cited as a source of them because the paint flakes off. It's like right at toddler level, a lot of windowsills. Yeah. So they just like run their hands along them. I remember um, 
when when I was a teenager and I grew up near Mansfield, Ohio, and there is the Mansfield Reformatory there, which is a really well-known uh, prison that operated, I think, until the 50s or 60s. And it was legitimately like a reformatory. It wasn't like prisons today. Mm-hmm. Um, and they warned us when we walked in there because they were in the process of removing the lead paint. They said, don't touch the bars. Don't touch the railings. This is all still lead paint. And I was like, well, then why are we in here? <laughs> Yeah, and I I remember that very distinctly because the paint was like a a like a pea soup green on the mm. bars and the railings, and they were like, "Don't touch any of it because we're still removing it." And I wonder if there's dangerous. arsenic in it too. We probably. <laughs> I have to laugh at it at this point because it was you know twenty years ago um, when I was in oh. there, and it's it's all safe now. But yeah, it it was in everything that we produced because it was like oh the color is more shiny the paint lasts longer it's more resistant to mold so you can paint it in your you know you can paint your bathrooms with it like it was in absolutely everything and especially in rural areas still as in the u.s i know there's there's places in canada too that the yeah. houses aren't up to code and yeah. if you're rambling around in there you could very easily breathe in a lot of lead wild yeah mm-hmm. yeah i thought no, it was really please. interesting in your mouth yeah to please yeah. don't don't put paint chips in your mouth it's a really big danger with kids um just don't put anything in your don't, mouth don't no? put like, bullets in your mouth don't put bullets in paint your mouth. chips in your mouth if you're at a con don't put dice in your mouth don't put anything in your mouth you know what i don't care how fucking terrifying it is go on youtube and watch don't you put it in your mouth. It is a Canadian oh, treasure. Terrifying. You're going to fucking scare <laughs> no. yourself out of putting shit in your mouth. Go watch it. Do it now. Oh. Now. I always have to right tell now. like the preschoolers, like, what goes in your mouth? Food goes in your mouth and water goes in your mouth. We don't put yep. toys in our mouth. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Imported rocks, toys. Don't put rocks in your mouth. Don't put rocks in your mouth. Don't lick the rock. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it, but if you're yeah, a geologist, we... sometimes you have to lick a rock. Sometimes you have to lick a rock. But then you're don't lick a rock unless you have the the license to do so. Did you see in Michigan they just found a I think it was a mastodon skeleton? No. Oh my gosh, the governor tweeted about it. I was like, "What? Hold on, let me find it cuz I think y'all will really enjoy this." Um, I was like, "Excuse me, what?" Yeah, it oh, was I, a. I haven't been on Twitter since I started working. That's fair. It was a mastodon skeleton. Here we go. Here's the link. Here we go. Here we go. Um, yeah, they were they were wow. doing drain construction and they found a mastodon. Isn't that cool? What? Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Insane. I love it. Like what? here, really? <laughs> I'm into it. But yeah, that's that's led. That's I I appreciate um Courtney your insight on that especially because like it's really easy to read this stuff and be like, "Oh, yeah, that totally makes sense," but there's the evidence is still really lacking in modern day yeah. um to to directly tie lead exposure to some of these behavioral things that we're seeing yeah. in certain certain people of certain ages. Um but they yeah. are I mean, it's, scientists it's are really- trying. Yeah. And it's really easy to want to give them a, a yes. of course you were fucking fucked up. Look at all the lead you fucking ate as a kid. But Right. Which is probably true, but I, I mean, yeah, it, fair. It's, 
yeah so who knows it, also, it'll be interesting we hold people to see. accountable for their actions Ex- yes and i think that's part of the the kind of the more like um layman thinking on that i know it, it is mine too like why are you so hateful and racist but also maybe your aggression part of your brain got turned on yeah. a little bit more because of lead so we don't your, really know and your dad hit you with a belt a lot and yep. your mom was constantly taking diet pills and you were traumatized you by yeah. <laughs> old world, world wars and totally taking cocaine for toothaches and yep. not getting loved yep. properly and yeah yeah it's <laughs> it, it is very it's very interesting like i said when i was doing the research for the more modern um, behavioral tracking and studies, it's it's still in its very it's still very nascent, still very yeah. early stages. But there they are. Um, there's a lot of soil samples being taken. There's yeah a lot of things being looked at. That's like I always think about my grandparents who had when we would um, go over there. You know, when my mom was working and we would we would stay there during the summer to be babysat every day. She would have like an entire chest full of old metal toys. I'm sure they had mm. lead paint on them. Oh, probably. They were probably like, made of lead. Yeah. So who knows? And I'm sure we both put them I in our mouths. So. <laughs> I just think of all the lead bobbers that I've lost in lakes. Oh gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know if they still use lead or not, but they. I. I'm sure when I was a kid they were, and all of the lead, the bobbers, I've, you know, the lead weights I'd lost in weight lakes and. Oh man. Uh... That's it for this week. Next week we're back, and I'm going to tell you about one of the most progressive religions today, the Satanic Temple. As always, pictures and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up to date with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story that you want us to cover, want to tell us that we're wrong, or you just want to say hi, you can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm.